From the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. It is December 2021, and this is our last episode of the year. To close out the year on a positive, lighter note, we decided to do something a little different for this episode. Each of our current podcast subcommittee members met with mentors or colleagues they admire. Despite working closely together, we don't always take the time to have one-on-one conversations about our accomplishments and aspirations for the field. We hope these fireside chats are just the thing you need this holiday season. Stay tuned to hear Ryan Kuehl speak with Shannon Dixon. Then I will chat with Michelle Fox. Rowan Awad will speak with Wendy Ullman, and Mary Pat Bland will interview Karen Kovac. I got to sit down with someone that I feel that I've, I've known very well, Shannon Dixon, the program director at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, genetic counseling training program for which I am an alumnus. So I'm very happy that you're here, Shannon. Thank you so much for joining us. Ryan, thank you so much for the invitation. It is such a pleasure to get to chat with you today. I wanted to sit down with you because we're doing this episode talking about parts of the field and the way that they're moving forward. So Mm -hmm. before we sort of jump into what's been going on in like the education space, which you're very familiar with, I'd like to talk a little bit more about who you are. Okay. So I have been in this field for a really long time and I do, I'm one of those people who wakes up every day and is grateful that I found my, my career calling in college and have been able to do it. So every day has been a new adventure. I went to the at the time, it was called the Beaver Genetic Counseling Training Program, Beaver College. At graduation, they were renamed Arcadia, and then the Arcadia program transferred to the Penn program. Following going to grad school, I worked in Philadelphia as a prenatal genetic counselor for a few years and had the opportunity to work with some pretty interesting people and challenge my thoughts on genetic counseling and thinking about what patient delivery looks like and community engagement looks like. And then following my time in Philadelphia, I moved down to Augusta, Georgia, and was a general genetic counselor working at the Medical College of Georgia. So working primarily in the pediatric hospital, the children's hospital, and then working in adult space um, with patients who have cancer, working with some neurodegenerative disorders, and spending some time thinking about what education looks like and teaching looks like, specifically working with the medical students and the residency programs there. From there, I was recruited up to the University of Maryland School of Medicine and have been working with the genetic counseling training program there since November of 2000. So it's been quite a journey. Yeah, you know, you've done so much. Do you feel that your interest has changed within the profession? Are there different parts of genetic counseling as a whole that have really, you know, you've shifted from in your career at time to time? I think that genetic counseling is one of those really cool professions that you can find something you're interested in and explore it and try it. But those same core values transfer across what you're experiencing and exploring. So I've known since day one that I really value getting to know families. I really value getting to know people. I value the time and the encounters with individuals. And so I think those core values and those core interests have been pretty constant throughout my professional tenure. Like I said, I spent some time in prenatal. I spent some time doing some general. I really self-identify as a pediatric genetic counselor at heart. But I think that the skills that you apply in any one of those specific types of genetic counseling are ones that we learn in school. And they just, it's a matter of where you want to apply them and how you want to apply them and being given the opportunity to just try them out. Like you're saying, you can sort of almost plug out and plug into a different sector of genetic counseling and and still feel that your values within the profession remain the same. 
So when you became the program director at University of Maryland, what was sort of your first experiences? That's a great question. In full transparency, I was scared out of my mind. Somebody's trusting me to do what? But I think that I found myself grounded pretty quickly. I recognized that I'm really a steward of the program. And so how do we think about leaving a legacy in that students that we train, the faculty members who are really the core of the training program. So I spent the first year at the program just listening and watching and observing, asking a lot of questions. But when I came in, I committed to myself and I committed to anybody who would listen to me that we weren't going to make any big changes in the year, you know, first year or two, just until we figured out what direction the program wanted to go in. But that took a lot of recognition and who are the stakeholders in the program? Where does the university envision the profession going? Where does the genetic counseling community envision the profession? going? And then what are the meaningful moments from students and faculty members? And how do we grow our own set of curricular experiences, as well as what sorts of path do we want to forge for the identity of the training program? So I spent a lot of time learning, like I said, learning and listening, and then slowly started trying new things, recognizing that there's always an opportunity for growth. (laughs) We have to make a lot of decisions. And sometimes the decisions are right. And I think that recognizing sometimes we make a choice and it doesn't work out the way we want to. And that's okay. It's all just a part of growing and learning. And the sooner that I got comfortable saying, well, let's try again, the easier it became. So seeing that everyone who has contact with the program contributes in some way and contributes to the growth of the program and being receptive to how we can grow and think more broadly really helped, in my opinion, to evolve the program. When I was in the training program with you just a few years ago, there was this sort of mantra that we all undertook, which is trust the process. Is that something that you understood early on and has grown with you over time? And has the meaning of that changed at all for you? So I will tell you that those words were muttered to me when I was a second year student by a person who I very much see as my first mentor. And when they were shared with me, I was like, okay. But every year when I reflect back on the introduction to the training program during orientation and we say, trust the process trust the process. It may not make sense in the moment, but reflecting the next day or reflecting a week or a month or a year later, hopefully you can see the bigger picture. And so I think that now more than ever, trust the process is such a vital part of the program. And equally, it's a call to action for everyone. The process doesn't necessarily mean that it's perfect, but it's an act that we're all going through and that we're all committed to learning and growing and making it a better program than we came into it. So yes, it is very, very much still how we define the program. And I think that anyone who were fortunate to have join us in their educational journey or in their teaching journey has been able to help us embrace that motto more and continue to redefine it. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's still something that I think about to this day, right? You know, it's not only a process as you're going through the training, but as you're coming out of it and you're starting your career, have your goals changed over time with the program? I think my goals when I first joined the Maryland team were to perhaps leave the program a little bit better than I found it. But I recognize that those goals were probably pretty vague. And I very much see myself as a steward of the program. I do not define the program. It is defined by every single person who has been a part of the training program over the last many years, students and faculty alike. So I think our goals continue to be to train great genetic counselors and have them prepared to to be 
active in community engagement, be it in a patient perspective, being in a volunteer role, being in how do we give back to our genetic counseling community or a community in which we work, the community that we are growing, you know, from at a global health level. So the goals of the program, I think, continue to evolve, but it's also how can we anticipate what the future health needs are for our clients that we will serve, but also helping educate our students to be ambassadors and to be ones that are forward thinking and recognize, you know, we all make mistakes. Let's learn from it. Let's grow again, trust that process. Or also being comfortable having hard conversations saying, I don't know to something, but I know where to look it up, or we're going to try and figure this out together. So being comfortable in their skills as a genetic counselor, you know, the proverbial toolbox, you can keep on adding to that toolbox over time. But if you use the foundational knowledge that you have, you can only just do great things. Definitely. Do you feel that you've achieved a lot of those goals? I think so. I think that when I look at the success of our alumni and the success of the faculty members who have been a part of the program and have moved on to new opportunities, I see that they're just doing great things for the genetic counseling community. And that's really the testament to success in my mind is that if our students can come in and do better things than we even imagined for them, then we are doing something right. Our students are active in patient care. They're active in community involvement. They're leaders at the regional and national level. They're taking on jobs that weren't even a thing when I was in graduate school, let alone thought to consider. And so they're really defining the future of genetic counseling. And what an amazing testament to, I guess, achievement of goals that we don't necessarily even envision. My goal is for our students to do better than I could ever hope for. And they exceed that expectation every year without fail. I certainly agree. Whenever I'm watching your webinar, listening to a podcast, seeing people contribute to the community, I'm always looking for those MGCs, right, in the crowd that are popping up, that are leading those conversation and leading those decision making. So I think that that is a a testament to the success of the program as well and the success of education in general, right? Because not only are are we seeing leaders coming out of the Maryland program, but all over, right? You know, the, the explosion of genetic counselors at the forefront of medical genetics has been incredible in the past few years. Have you felt that the landscape of educating genetic counselors has changed over time? I really think it has. And again, I think it's in direct response to people seeing that no longer can we say, well, I'm a content matter expert, so I can teach. And, you know, what we did from te- for teaching strategies and the early 2000s is very, very different than the expectation now. We really have to be on our A game at all times. And I think that, again, we all have something to learn and grow. And every day is a new opportunity to learn something. And so I think the teaching landscape is really trying to rise to that challenge and deliver what's going to be best for our students. Lots of people are, are working on you know, doctorate programs. They're taking coursework in education. They're trying to figure out what's the best educational delivery model to meet the needs of the students. There's some data that suggests from like the practice-based competencies that you can also use in the reciprocal engagement model as a supervision model, but it, those, that reciprocal engagement model can also be used in a teaching atmosphere. So a shout out to Pat McCarthy Beach and Bonnie Leroy's group for developing the reciprocal engagement model. But I think that now that educators are paying attention to what are different educational models, what are different educational learning structures, how can we best provide an environment which our students can be challenged and have transition of actual knowledge from just memorization to application. I think that the entire education community is working really hard to develop skills that are meaningful and then transferable. 
Certainly. And I think the big question that a lot of people have had within the community is how has the impact of COVID changed that landscape? And what does that mean for the education of prospective genetic counselors in the future? COVID was hard. It continues to be hard. Overnight, we all pivoted to some degree of um, virtual learning, you know, so thank goodness that many of us have had access to great technology. But I think that the early weeks and months of COVID challenge educators to think about things like stable internet. And are you in a learning environment that's supportive to the students, to food insecurity? Is there rent insecurity? Are we having to pay attention to it? So I think that COVID put a big pause on the drive for we need to be perfect at everything and recognize we're going to teach, we're going to provide, but we need to take care of our students as a whole person. I would argue that the genetic counseling program director community has taken the needs of the students globally seriously for forever, really paying attention to personal as well as professional development. But COVID forced us to critically think about the larger impact. I think that programs were challenged with how are we going to continue to deliver excellence in clinical education, in rotation experiences. There was some really cool creative stuff coming out of the different training programs and collaborations that happened to provide opportunities for the students. I think also we need to pause and say that the students continue to demonstrate such resilience and grace. They are flexible. And I think that anyone who is learning in this environment really needs to be applauded for the work that they are committing to and the resilience that they're demonstrating. Yeah, certainly. What aspects of educating genetic counseling students are you looking forward to? What are some things that you're excited about for the future? I am of the mindset that every day is a new opportunity to learn something. The students make me a better genetic counselor. They make me a better educator. I think that the community is putting such an emphasis on diversifying our profession and not just using one definition of diversity, but thinking really broadly and really globally. So I can't wait to see what the students and faculty bring to the table and help teach each other and grow the profession, what new doors are going to be open and new opportunities are developing and how our profession itself is going to continue to expand and just be part of core healthcare delivery. Is there anything you're looking forward to in the next year? Well, exciting news. The University of Maryland, together with four other training programs, just received a pretty significant educational grant from the Warren Alpert Foundation that we are going to be creating a diversity scholarship track at the five institutions. Each institution is committed to taking two students and providing full tuition and living expenses for two students per class for the next five years, which I think is amazing. It's going to provide access to the genetic counseling profession for people from very, very diverse backgrounds. So recognizing that this is a a monumental opportunity to grow the field. And then also in doing so, creating a series of mentors for further individuals so that we can keep helping grow our profession to meet the needs or reflect more on the communities that we serve. That's wonderful. That's that's such great news. Oh, it was so exciting. We were so thrilled to be able to celebrate it on Genetic Cancer Awareness Day too. Um, So that was really special. That's wonderful. Awesome. Well, again, thank you, Shin, so much for joining us. You're one of the inspiring factors in my life when it comes to genetic counseling. So I hope that this conversation will help inspire a lot of others. Thank you so much, Ryan. And again, my students inspire me every day. Students and alumni are why we do this and help us be better. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan and Shannon. Next, we'll jump into my chat with Michelle. 
Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure now to be here with Michelle Fox. We tangentially work together at Invite, but don't get to spend a whole lot of time one-on-one. So I'm excited today to have the opportunity to talk to Michelle and hear her thoughts about some things in our field and beyond. So welcome, Michelle. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity, Naomi. To start, could you just share with our listeners a bit about yourself and your background and your career in genetic counseling? Sure. I was a clinical genetic counselor at UCLA for over 30 years and uh, more of a generalist than anything else, which was a wonderful opportunity. I was the first gen counselor they hired there, believe it or not, over 30 years ago. So that was a very exciting thing for me. And then when I left UCLA, I became a consultant at Invitae, among other things. And that has given me an incredible opportunity to keep my finger on the pulse of everything that's happening in genetics. And that has been incredible. Basically, start when it was pretty much a startup. So that was incredible too, and expanded my horizons. And this last year, to be honest with you, with over my 40-year career, or almost 40 years, really has been one of the most exciting because in addition, I have been on the board of NSGC and I'm president of the Southern California Genetic Counselors, which is a nonprofit regional genetic counseling group of over 200 genetic counselors. And one of the most exciting things I taught this quarter at the UCLA genetic counseling program that I spent with others 10 or 15 years trying to get developed. So that was an incredible opportunity and the quarter just ended and it was wonderful. Sounds great. Thinking about all of the various work opportunities you've had and specialties you've worked in, what were some of your favorite settings to work in or specialties to work in within genetics over the years? Well, my two favorites, I think, are metabolic genetics and neurogenetics. And metabolic, especially in these last few years, just that we are bridging the gap between diagnosis and treatment, things I never thought would happen. And we've done that in metabolic for a long time. But for other genetic disorders like SMA and Leber's congenital amaurosis, never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. That has just been truly remarkable. And in neurogenetics, we had the opportunity to start one of the first clinical predictive Huntington's testing programs in the country, taking it out of the research realm and offering it to our patients. That has really been such a great opportunity to work in neurogenetics. And neurogenetics obviously is kind of the next frontier in treatment. We've talked about it offline, how for me, neurogenetics seems really challenging of a field. Was that one of the more challenging specialties to work in? What has been some of the more challenging experiences? I think it really has been for me. And, you know, not having more treatment options for our Huntington's patients, I really don't know if in my lifetime I'm going to see treatment for Huntington's disease. So we have a a very large Huntington's clinic at UCLA, and it was the families that really led us to offer the predictive or presymptomatic testing program because they were clamoring for it and there wasn't anything available especially west of the Mississippi, which often happens in the United States. So we offered it, and to see our patients who tested positive then become symptomatic really, Nomi, was very, very challenging. Did you learn anything from those experiences or counseling that you think made it easier or made you a better counselor over time? I'm sure many of our listeners are working with those patient populations or considering it and curious what seeing it over many years, what you could share with our audience. 
I was constantly humbled by the patients and the families, constantly. The ones that we thought would do really well with a particular result were the ones that sometimes fell apart and quite the opposite. But in our experience, when patients did test negative, their ability to help their affected family members in a very special way, taking off their burden to think about their future of being affected was really remarkable. And that was really incredible. On the other hand, we had people that tested that always thought they would be positive. They made all of their life decisions thinking they were positive. A few of them were disappointed. I don't know if disappointed, but they had made decisions that they wouldn't have made if they known they were negative. They felt accepted as part of the community of people with Huntington's or the people that were positive for the gene. And so they had a huge adjustment to their negative status. And I was constantly humbled by that. A tenant that Joan Marks instilled at us the first day of Sarah Lawrence was always start where the patient's at. And boy, if I learned one thing, it was that. Never to assume what a patient was going to think about it or was going to do or was going to say. And always start where they're at. Meet them where they're at and do the best thing we can to support them in their decision making. I've seen that happen with some families in the vision loss and blindness communities too, with these large dominant family pedigrees where people have some mixed feelings if their results come back negative or different from their family members. So that's an excellent piece of advice. That reminds me a bit of some of our conversations we've had about disability and identity and how patients think about themselves and their genetic conditions. A comment that I love and often turn back to from Laura Hirsch on the podcast Mendel's Pod from a while ago is, can we both embrace difference and as part of that embracing, offer people the option to be less different? Can we draw the line between something being identity and a disability when in fact it is both? I believe that quote is from a conversation Laura took part in about gene-based treatments and therapies, which I know you mentioned a little earlier, and some of them people may or may not think need, quote, fixing. I'm curious on your thoughts on that and on genetic counselors' roles as advocates for people with disabilities and genetic conditions, but also as advocates for increasing treatment and therapy options for genetic conditions as well. Well, I can tell you one very specific opportunity that I had to work with deaf adults. We offered genetic testing both to parents of infants that failed newborn hearing screening as a research project and then offering genetic testing to deaf adults. And what we learned with the guidance of Christina Palmer in particular was we started the project working with the California Deaf Studies Program at Cal State Northridge. And that collaboration meant everything to the project, starting with the people that were the experts, both in advocacy and education, and not involving them on the back end, but on the front end. So every research angle that we looked at, every educational event that we did was involving the Deaf Studies program. And that was a huge learning experience. There is controversy that deaf adults really don't want to know their genetic status. We found out that that really was not true for many of them. Some of them don't, but many of them really did. And it was a really rewarding experience. Currently, there is a controversy with the treatment of achondroplasia. 
And again, there are always going to be those controversies and we have to do the best we can to meet our patients, our families, the advocates, the organizations, again, where they're at. How can we add to that conversation? How can we help them in any way that we can? And there's always going to be controversy, Naomi, in this area. There continues to be. There certainly has been with some of the disorders that are added to newborn screening. That continues to be a controversy. Is there really treatment or not? Because that's been the standard. And where do we stand on that? So as we expand, as you said, with these treatments, there's going to continue to be controversy. I learned a lot from an adult patient that I met as a young man with SMA who does not want to be identified with the SMA community because he does not feel that he's disabled and he wants to be a spokesperson because he does have SMA and he can really help other people, but not being identified from the disabled vantage point. And so I've learned so much from our patients who come forward to be tested and to come for treatments and what that means to them. As you've noted, too, that's probably been a big change you've seen over time, just the increasing amount that treatment comes into the conversation with genetic counselors or the upcoming treatments. Looking back, have there been other really notable changes in the conversations you're having in the field? Well, I think the nuances are that treatments are not cures. And I think that is one of the areas that we can make a difference in through education. It was just brought to our attention this week, actually, in a case conference that we had at Invitae, where education for individuals who have a very serious genetic disorder, whatever that treatment is, many of them really are not cures by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that that is something that we can continue to address. And I think it would really help our patients, families, and the advocacy groups to do that. That's a good piece of advice. Thinking about bringing in many perspectives, and I appreciate you talking about what you've learned from your patients as well. I agree that's very helpful to hear different perspectives from patients and see how they identify, meet them where they're at. I know we have a lot of prospective genetic counselors listening and students, and they're just starting to have these conversations with patients and families. And I know since you've worked with the UCLA program, I'm curious what your tips are for people early in their career or just starting training, how to approach their training, approach new experiences with patients or families. Any advice for these folks newer into genetics? I think the biggest piece of advice is not to be scared. This is so long ago, Naomi, for me, and I can remember it like it was yesterday, okay? Being terrified. And now the programs are doing a better job, I think, of having observations and clinical experience from the beginning. And that's helped a lot because we didn't have that opportunity. We were held off a little bit in the beginning, I think, many years ago, and we just got more scared as time went on. So developing that, it's takes a lot of just being open to all the different ways you see genetic counselors counseling patients because you're going to develop your own style. So being open to that. And again, quoting Joan Marks, who was one of my mentors, is you're not going to kill a patient with your words. That's very comforting. And we're not. We can make mistakes. We can say, I don't know. Much better to err on the side of I don't know 
than to take a stab at something you think you know. And many of these things I've learned the hard way, Naomi. It's trial and error and just being open to new experiences. And then as new graduates, to be open to taking risks with jobs. I mean, I took a big risk at UCLA. Of course, I wanted the position, but I was the first genetic counselor there. They had no idea what my job was going to be. I had no idea what my job was going to be. I had worked a very short time in New York before we moved to LA. I was pretty terrified the whole time. When I came to Invite as a consultant, wow, a brand new world. I had no idea working remotely, having that opportunity, had no idea what I was going to be doing or how I was going to be doing it, and pretty much reinvented myself for the last seven years at Invite constantly. And it's been an amazing experience. So taking risks is a big part of what we do as genetic counselors. Yeah, I'd say that's great advice for anyone, not just newer into their career (laughs) as well. I was talking with a colleague when we had a recent student and we were encouraging them to jump in and take a risk. And then we as employees were asked to do something new that scared us. And we realized we had to take the same advice we were giving our students. Mm -hmm. So I think actually maybe even more important advice as people are deeper into their careers as well. And especially with the expansion of roles. I mean, there are so many roles. Now we can't even count them. Now that the future is just so bright and so filled with opportunities. So looking forward, what are you most hopeful for, for the future of genetic counseling or genetic counseling training? Well, I'll tell you what I'm most hopeful for, and it's very controversial. So I'm going to throw it out there because I feel like I have the opportunity to do that. Many years ago, a group of us started looking into a clinical doctorate for genetic counselors. It was very controversial. It was not widely accepted. I don't think it had the critical look that it should have had. And of course, there's a lot of players here with ABGC, ACGC, the program directors. I mean, there's a lot at stake here and how that would be done. But now that 70% of NSGC members are under 40 and haven't had the chance to think about this, I think it's time to revisit that. And I know it's controversial, but I think it's something that we should do because now that we have young people that face a long career, I think we need more career ladder opportunities in genetic counseling, clinical doctorate, PhD programs in genetic counseling. I think we have to be open to those future prospects. I know there's been lots of conversations about what the future of the profession looks like and is there one path or many. I think we all know there are many things people are doing and whether or not they are going to have specific names or titles or paths will be interesting to see. Well, I want to quote Mary Fry Vogel again because Mary says, I'm a genetic counselor and this is what I do. This is my job. And I am all in favor of that. I think there should not be divisions between what we do. I really don't want to promote that. I think there's just so much opportunity, but we have to think about where the profession is going and how it can grow and what ways it can grow in. Beyond genetics, maybe, what are you most looking forward to in the new year? 
Well, I am most looking forward to keeping up to date with everything that's going on in genetics and genetic counseling, be it spending time with my uh, fabulous family and friends. And then really, I'm so looking forward to having a face-to-face genetics meeting to see genetic counseling friends that I have not been able to hug and have drinks with for a couple of years now. And I really look forward to that, Naomi. Yeah, me too. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate having this short time to chat today. Thank you. Next, we'll hear from Rowan and Wendy. Wendy, it's both a pleasure and a privilege to host you to this fireside chat episode of the NSGC podcast. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to see you again. You and I met almost 12 years ago when I was volunteering at a clinical genetics department in a hospital near Jerusalem, and you had been visiting at that time. Let's start by having you tell us more about yourself and your career journey so far. I graduated from the University of Michigan Genetic Counseling Program. I have been a member of NSGC since 1987, and I had the honor of serving as NSGC president 1999 to 2000. Rawan, you and I met, I can still see it vividly. It was a day that I had given a talk at Hadassah Hospital to the Genetic Counseling Program students there on predictive genetic testing for Huntington's disease and ethical issues. The talk came about because literally I reached out to Michal Sagi, who was the director of the program, to say that I was coming to Israel to learn more about genetics in Israel. I gave the talk with Michal Sagi, and that talk actually led to a collaboration later that we ended up writing an article together on the history of the genetic counseling profession in Israel, which was the first to describe the training of master's degree level genetic counselors there. What I recall then is that then months later that you contacted me because you were coming not only to America, but you were coming to Michigan. Yes. Little did I know that about a year after we met, I would have been relocating less than an hour away from you. Since then, I want to say that we've had multiple conversations, both personal and professional topics, and I really value your friendship. Likewise, value yours. And I remember, like, as you were trying to figure out where to work in Michigan, talking through the different possibilities, that chance meeting, which I guess is something that I want to talk about in general, is being able to give time when you feel like you don't have time can really mean the world of difference in someone else's life. And so, Wendy, given that you have this really extensive experience with students, what do you wish you would have known as a genetic counseling student or a new graduate? You're asking me to think back pretty far, um, over three decades, that I do continue to work with students. I get to see every day some of the challenges that everyone faces. And I think that what I would say as much as possible is to be present, to be present in all that you do. And to really think about, you know, in terms of patient care, how would you want to be treated yourself or have a family member treated? Do your best then to do the same for all the patients that you see. The other thing I would say is really to be comfortable with saying, I do not know. Our field has expanded so much, and it is so important to recognize that we do not know everything, and we have to be prepared to look up information in front of our patients. We have to be prepared to ask our colleagues for help with information. We have to be prepared to continue to be lifelong learners. Just try. Just try. Take risks and just try and to be willing to learn from things that did not go as smoothly as well as to be able to recognize when things do go smoothly and carry that forward. 
as a risk taker myself, I would concur with your perspective here. And I would say that networking and being open and treating other colleagues and patients the same way that you got to be treated goes a long way. Was there ever a time you considered leaving the profession? I would say that there were times that I thought about whether I wanted to go on and get more training and more skills. I trained back in an era where the genetic counseling program was literally 16 months long for the master's degree. And so the one thing that I thought that I might want to go on and do is get more skills as a researcher. In the end, I have been on research teams and recognized that what I bring to the table is expertise in genetic counseling. I do not have to be an expert in statistics. And I do not have to be an expert in survey design. I will say for a while, I really thought that I needed to go on and get a statistics course. I had taken my last statistics course as an undergraduate. And I even bought like a couple of different books, you know, almost like statistics for non-math majors and everything else until I realized that really that I was being asked to serve on teams because of my expertise in genetic counseling. And I did not have to be the one to figure out the regression models and whether it's a 1T test or a 2T test that I could rely on others on the team. And so I think that probably a piece of advice is to really go out there and do things that you want to do and recognize that you're being called upon because of your expertise in genetic counseling. I think my tendency maybe in the early days was to shy away from doing things and from volunteering because I thought, oh, I don't know how to do X, Y, Z, as opposed to concentrating and focusing on the things that I did know how to do. Well, you've had a lot of successes along the way. You have extensive experience in a lot of different areas. What has been your proudest achievement? My proudest achievement was becoming a clinical professor at the University of Michigan. And I was the first person with a master's degree to reach the rank of clinical professor in the medical school. And I was proud of this achievement because it took many, many years. In fact, I became a clinical instructor in human genetics in 1997, and it took till 2008 to become a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine and the Department of Human Genetics. And then after that, the faculty promotions went a little bit quicker, and I became a clinical associate professor in 2012, and then a full professor professor in 2018. And this has opened the door for other genetic counselor colleagues at the University of Michigan to become faculty members. And it has been a real pleasure for me to be able to write their letters of support for their faculty promotions. Another thing I'm proud of is being a co-editor of the book, A Guide to Genetic Counseling. That literally started out as a breakfast meeting where Diane Baker was meeting with myself and Jane Chouette, and she uh, had a piece of paper with her, and she goes, oh, you'll never guess what I was asked to do. I was asked to be an editor of a book on our field, and she then kind of put that down on the table, and Jane and I said, wait, wait a minute. Let, let's talk about this, and so we ended up drafting up, uh, I don't know if it was at that breakfast meeting or, or at another meeting, but we ended up really thinking about the different program directors across the country who could contribute chapters to the the book and that there really was not a book in our field that was being used that was written by genetic counselors for genetic counselors. And so it really was an honor and a privilege to be able to be a co-editor and chapter contributor to the book, A Guide to Genetic Counseling, which has been used for a couple decades now across the world to train genetic counselors and is a resource for others wanting to learn more about our field. In addition, I am proud of the leadership roles that I had played in the field of genetic counseling. 
currently I am about to start a term on the American Society of Human Genetics Board of Directors in January. When I join in January, I will be the only genetic counselor on the Board of Directors. And I'm proud also of having served as NSGC president. Congratulations, Wendy. It's my first time learning about your Board of Director position. I remember when you announced becoming a full professor, I was in awe of all the work that you had done to get to that point. It is not easy. Thank you for doing that for the whole profession, really. It's very inspiring. And I was definitely motivated by other genetic counselors that had achieved clinical professor at their universities. And I think that it is a long road and I achieved it by doing the same things that an MD or PhD would for that position, you know, in terms of being an active clinician, educator, researcher, and active nationally in the field of genetic counseling. Do you have a favorite type of area in genetics or genetic counseling that you find rewarding? I have always been drawn to neurogenetic conditions, and that stems from the fact that my father had multiple sclerosis and was a wheelchair user. And so I feel that it's given me a certain insight into the lives of people that are living with neurogenetic conditions. And it's also made me comfortable dealing with conditions with end-of-life issues. So I have really enjoyed working over the decades with individuals considering predictive genetic testing for Huntington's disease, Alzheimer's disease, ALS, frontal temporal dementia. And I have also been involved since 2007 on Scott Roberts' research team here at the University of Michigan with many years devoted to the REVEAL study, which involved risk communication for Alzheimer's disease. So I've enjoyed being able to do some of this on a a research basis, but also um, in the clinic as well. And then the flip side, anything challenging or that you do not enjoy talking about? I think I am challenged right now in terms of doing variant interpretation beyond what is provided in the reports that I find going to some of the different databases to be challenging, especially because of the small font size and navigation complexity. And so that's something that I do look towards my younger colleagues for assistance with and something that I hope to continue to evolve and learn. I think most of us feel the same way, Wendy, so thanks for sharing. What key lessons have you learned along the way that you're willing to share with us? Realize that sometimes when you don't have an hour to give, to realize that that hour could make a lifetime difference for someone else. I was reminded of that at the NSGC Awards when one of the recipients of the Leadership Award acknowledged me, and I had no idea who she was. And afterwards, I went up to her and congratulated her, and she looked at me and she said, Ed, you have no idea who I am. And I said, exactly. And it turned out that she had, as an undergraduate, attended one of those career talks that I had given on the field of genetic counseling. And I remembered because it was a day when I felt like, oh, I don't have time to do this. And I went ahead and did it anyway to learn later that it actually made a difference in terms of this person deciding to become a genetic counselor really drove home the point that one hour can make a difference. I love that. I think it's a great lesson to everybody. We often are busy and distracted with our own lives, but just giving a little bit to the profession and small pockets of time to volunteer would go a long way. Is there a type of genetic testing or advancement or even a treatment that you find the most surprising? 
since I entered the field when we had very few known genes, even for single conditions. I entered the field before the genes had been discovered for Huntington's disease, uh, cystic fibrosis or neurofibromatosis. So I think what's been the most surprising for me is the fact that we can now do not only whole exome sequencing, but we can now do whole genome sequencing. What excites you the most about the future of neurocounseling and genetics? I think what I've been most impressed with are the younger genetic counselors and the new fields that they're going into and also the expertise that they already have and are sharing with our profession. At the NSGC meeting, I could not take notes fast enough on the information that they were conveying. I look at the younger generation of genetic counselors, including the ones that I'm fortunate to work with at the University of Michigan, who are working in split positions. So, for example, they are working in a cancer genetics clinic and they're working in our adult genetics clinic. They've launched an atypical diabetes genetics clinic. And so seeing where the field is going in terms of the subspecialty areas, but also in terms of genetic counselors having that diverse expertise and ability to work across disciplines is is, to me, is both exciting and just a, a sign of the growth of our profession in wide directions. I agree. I feel like the level of motivation and just the caliber of the students that are entering the profession has seemingly just exploded and increased over the years. All this is all proof that our skill set is expandable, but also new skills can be taught if you put your mind to it. I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you and everyone in three dimensions. And I really hope that we get to have a conference in person this year. And I've really missed being with close colleagues and friends at the meeting and being able to have the energy that we get to experience when we're together. The conversations that take place, not only in the rooms where sessions are being held, but more importantly, or just as importantly, I should say, in the hallways, in bathroom lines, at meals, that real synergy and crowdsourcing of information we've been trying to do over Zoom, and it's just not the same. So I'm really hoping that we have the opportunity to be in person um, in the fall. Me too, Wendy, me too. Thank you so much for your perspective and everything that you shared with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Rowan and Wendy. To finish off our fireside chats, we'll hear from Mary Pat and Karen. This is Mary Pat, and I'm here today with genetic counselor Karen Kovac. And I wanted to start by saying for many of us, one of the best parts of genetic counseling is working with patients and hearing their stories and perspectives. But I've always found beyond our patients, my talented coworkers and colleagues have been such a huge benefit of being a genetic counselor. It's so helpful to hear from seasoned colleagues about their career and the tips that they've gathered over the years. Karen is absolutely someone who came to mind. I have known her for many years as we've worked in the same city and now at the same institution. She is a great advocate for patients as well as genetic counselors and genetic counselors in training. Knowing there's many lessons that Karen's learned over the years, I am delighted to have her share some of those lessons with you. So welcome, Karen. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this. Well, maybe we can start by having you share how you originally became interested in genetic counseling and a little bit about your career. 
Yeah. So I think my story is fairly similar to a lot of genetic counselors. I got interested in biology and genetics when I was in high school and got hooked on that area of interest. And continue that in college, I ended up majoring in biology and genetics. And I had thought about a career in medicine, but I really found the competitive nature in the labs that I did with the pre-med students to be very uncomfortable and kind of decided, cross that option off my list. I worked in a lot of labs. I had a lot of jobs putting myself through college. I had a paid position at Planned Parenthood. I did a lot of volunteer work at a women's center on my college campus that was relatively new and had this great, very professional training to be a care counselor where I learned a lot of those counseling skills. And so once I graduated, I had intended to work in a lab. I got a job working in a lab that was a combined research clinical lab at a local hospital. And just, you know, that wasn't the best fit for me. And so I I began looking at other things. And by chance, one of my sisters, interestingly enough, this was very early, right? The very early days of genetic counseling. So it wasn't a career anybody had ever mentioned to me. And I never ran across it in my college years. But uh, one of my sisters was working in the admissions office at UC Berkeley. And came across the career just in terms of some of her exposure at work and mentioned it. And, you know, I continued to work at the lab and looked at other options, but it really caught my interest. And I visited local centers in the Bay Area that had genetic counselors and I took off from there. So that's how I got started. I ended up coming up to OHSU here in Portland, Oregon as my first job after I finished grad school and have stayed here for more than 40 years and have had so many different jobs. It's been really interesting. The first job was really kind of a shock in terms of being dumped into an academic center that had no genetic counselor and didn't really know what to do with a genetic counselor. Many centers in those days in the 70s and 80s had grant funding, federal grants that they could apply for as sort of seed money to hire a genetic counselor that lasted a few years while they figured out how to find institutional support for the positions. It was an interesting journey from there. And how long were you the only genetic counselor? I think it was about three or four years that I was on that grant funding. And when the time was coming for that funding to end, they hadn't figured out a way to find my salary. Mm -hmm. We didn't make very much money in those days, I have to say. (laughs) So I wasn't sure what to do. I actually applied for other jobs and was thinking Mm -hmm. of moving back to the Bay Area and applied for a couple jobs down there where I trained and had a lot of contacts. I feel so fortunate to have had some great geneticist colleagues. So I worked with Dr. Ellen McGinnis that some of Mm -hmm. you may know from Smith-McGinnis syndrome and some other conditions that she was at the forefront of. She started a cytogenetics lab here when she was in her training, just one of those icons in the genetics profession. And I came up with this idea to apply for some federal funding for a different kind of grant. I didn't know anything about writing grants. We applied for competitive funding for a project to work on families' experience and causes of neonatal and pregnancy loss. You know, our interest was certainly in looking at possible genetic causes and finding out what the best way to evaluate an infant or fetus in that situation would be to get a diagnosis. I just went into it so blind. I just kind of did my best and the grant got funded. It was after that grant started that the institution here originally did find some funding and needed another genetic counselor. So someone was hired to take the position I'd left. It kind of just built from there. You touched on applying for other positions at one point when there was a transition. I'm always curious for seasoned genetic counselors if there's ever been a time 
when they considered leaving the profession? I certainly thought about a switch at that time, as you mentioned. You know, in the early days of genetics, we could do free testing for any patients for many years. When I first started working here, the institution covered that. So we never had to worry about insurance. It wasn't until later in my career that we had to start getting pre-authorizations and, uh, you know, Medicaid, Medicare didn't necessarily cover genetic testing. It was a really rocky time. And I felt like my job just totally changed and I became an insurance broker, not a genetic counselor for a while. And I really didn't like that. So that was one time. Eventually that morphed into my partnering with our state Medicaid team, which I still work with. We have a meeting every year to look at the new CPT codes and what they should cover in the way of genetic services. And so it led me to get involved in that little bit of public health advocacy work. And I think that was a good addition to my career and kept it interesting. The other time was after I had my second child. It was after my maternity leave and I was going back to work and the Oklahoma City bombing happened around that time. And remember that there was a daycare center in the building. I would be driving to work and I would just have to pull over and cry. I mean, I just, the idea of leaving my kids and thinking about what am I doing? And is this job really, you know, it's just one of those crises that I'm sure a lot of people have when something momentous like that happens. Do you think that there's anything specific that kept you here? I think being at the same place and being able to see families through the years, that is incredibly rewarding. I have to say, you know, I recently had a 30-year-old patient that I saw off and on over the years, you know, and we did the standard testing early on that we had in those days. And then every five years or so, we'd do more testing and we finally got a diagnosis. And I can't tell you how grateful the family was. I don't think it's changing anything about her future, but just that sense of having the knowledge. It's not staying in the same place. I would have missed some of those opportunities to have almost lifelong relationships with some patients. I think the variety of roles that I've played teaching a lot of different clinics, I've had opportunity to start programs that didn't previously exist. I don't think genetic counselors do this as much anymore, but in the early days when we didn't have a lot of testing to do, we did a lot more talking. (laughs) And a lot of genetic counselors like myself were instrumental in starting support groups for rare conditions. So I was involved in the first one, I think was the neurofibromatosis support group here. Dr. McGinnis and I started a support group for Prader-Willi syndrome. I was involved with starting a support group for Marfan syndrome. And the one that's been most long lived for me that I've had been doing until COVID was a support group for families with Huntington disease. And you learn so much about people's lives with genetic disorders in a support group that you never hear in clinic visits. And I think those opportunities, even though they were demanding on my time, it's given that extra dimension that's really informed the way I work with and talk with families. If you had to have a favorite type or area of genetics that's the most rewarding Mm -hmm. to you, is it that participation with the Huntington's group and some of the support groups? I really like working in pediatrics. And I think the main reason is parents are such great advocates for their kids and they're very motivated to do whatever it takes. And It's also a time of change in families. When I first started working here, the genetics clinic was part of the Child Development and Rehabilitation Center, and the clinic was very multidisciplinary. I learned so much about the kind of family life cycle and how you might do genetic counseling when it's a baby, but it's very different conversation when it's an eight-year-old. Being able to model for families how to talk about genetics and genetic conditions as their kids get older. You know, when the occupational and physical therapists come in and you can overhear part of their visit and the speech pathologist and the developmental pediatrician. You learn so much about all those other dimensions and I think variable abilities and how to be positive in terms of helping families talk to their kids about their genetic condition in a positive way. And as the kid gets older, talking with them directly and modeling that for the parents. I think the same thing happens around 
Huntington's when people are coming in for predictive testing. And a lot of people are motivated to have predictive testing because they want to be informed and prepared in a way that their parents and grandparents weren't. Given all that robust experience and and families you've worked with, is there possibly a condition or something to counsel on that's, that's hard still? I don't think there's a specific condition. I think it's more a situation that I still find Mm -hmm. challenging. As we all know, we have our sensitive areas from our own growing up situation or our our own family life. But I think when I'm working with families who really aren't that interested in the genetic diagnosis per se, but have a lot of needs in other areas that our healthcare system doesn't meet very well. So families that are really struggling with a child who might have a genetic disorder, but the real issue is the mental health symptoms boy, our system is challenged in that. And I think it's so hard to see families in such pain where there's not a lot you can do. I do much better and I feel quite comfortable with families who are grieving or families who are really sad. And I think part of that is that early grant project that I did working with families who'd been through losses. You know, I would go over to the labor and delivery and the physicians and nurses were not very comfortable addressing those families' needs when they just lost a baby and going in with the baby to talk with mom and talk about the kinds of genetic things we might be thinking about and how to get some answers, but just sitting with them. I think that's good for all of us to hear that we all are continuing to learn. I am wondering if there's any any other projects that you've worked on that have shaped how you've counseled related, unrelated, or key lessons we haven't touched on so far that you think would be good to share. You know, I'm a person who doesn't really say no very often. I think one of the lessons I wished I'd learned was a little bit more how to be a self-advocate and in an academic setting where there's a lot of high-powered, intelligent people. But on the other hand, I've gotten involved in so many projects that have been fascinating. I've worked on clinical research projects. I've partnered with the pathologists on some projects that were really interesting. I've learned one lesson to pass on that I'm not very good at is, you know, being thoughtful about what you agree to and not agree to. But I think in terms of things that have really impacted how I work with families, I think that grant project that I mentioned earlier, working with families who've experienced uh, perinatal loss was a key one. The way we do inpatient consults now is the genetic counselors have limited involvement, but it used to be the genetic counselor was the first person. I learned a lot about talking with families in a succinct way about my specific role and what I could do there. I think that was a good skill to learn, but also how to do it very compassionately given the stresses that families were under. But I learned a lot about the value of giving information in a crisis situation like that too, because I think it's a time when families are really open to change and information if they can take it in. That project also involved collaboration with all the hospitals that had NICUs around the state. And I'd only been a genetic counselor for a couple of years then. And I think I was pretty green about how to collaborate with other professionals around projects like this. But we had funding to pay for some things that they would have loved to do, but didn't have funding for. So I think I learned some good skills in collaboration through that project as well. Be brave and take things on. (laughs) Yes. Set limits. And if you don't set limits, really embrace it and pull things out that can make you a better counselor. Yeah, I I have to say there are things that I've done that I never imagined would be part of a career in genetic counseling too, if you think about what genetic counseling was. And I think part of that happened naturally here because there just weren't other people and nobody here knew what genetic counselors do and what they don't do. And so I might've created a mess for future genetic counselors. 
the other big project I really enjoyed was the Oregon Center for Children and Youth with Special Healthcare Needs. I worked on a lot of projects with that team, which taught me lots of lessons about how to talk to families about disability and their kids. We used to write a lot of brochures for patients around specific genetic conditions in those early days. And so I learned a lot of writing skills in that. I'd love to hear what excites you about the future of genetics, genetic counseling, and maybe even 2022. I think there's three things I'll say about that. One is I really, really look forward to hopefully having time with colleagues and families more in person hard to do well, I think, remotely. And I just really, I just don't feel quite as fulfilled and confident working remotely. Now, you know, I have other people that I supervise and learning those skills and doing that remotely and teaching genetic counseling assistants how that job is done well remotely is just very challenging. So I'm looking forward to that. And I hope that that happens. I also feel pretty excited. Here at our institution, we've worked, not just me, and I'm not claiming credit for this, but I've been part of a group in our Department of Molecular and Medical Genetics kind of working on pay equity for genetic counselors, because we do have a lot of responsibility that is invisible to maybe other medical professionals in terms of academic responsibilities. We've recently had some success with that here that the institution has really looked at. So I'm hoping that I've laid some groundwork to help my genetic counseling colleagues here. And getting genetic counseling licensure in our state has been a really long journey. It isn't quite done, but it was passed by the legislature this year. So I'm looking forward to, in Oregon, genetic counselors having more recognition. I think licensure will bring recognition and opportunities that we haven't had without it. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for all of your dedication (laughs) over the years and your leadership. I'm so, so glad to get to speak with you. And here's to 2022, hopefully in person a little bit more. Yay! Yes. Thank you, Mary <laughs> Pat. It's been lovely to chat with you. Thanks, Karen, and all of our speakers for sharing your thoughts and insights. That concludes this year's NSGC podcast series. Thank you for joining us for the 2021 season of the podcast. I want to extend a huge thank you to our 2021 subcommittee members, Ryan Kuhl, Mary Pat Bland, and Waran Awad, and past chair Kalita Leaquat, NSGC liaison Kristen Perry, and of course, all of our speakers. I especially want to extend a big thank you to Rowan, as this will be her last episode since she's rolling off the subcommittee. Rowan has led and interviewed for some excellent episodes over the past couple years, and we have all appreciated her ideas and input. Thanks, Rowan. In early 2022, we will welcome some new folks to the podcast subcommittee, and we'll be back next year with exciting new episodes. On that note, we would love to hear from you, our listeners, about what you would like to hear on the podcast next year. Please check out the link in the episode notes for a quick listener survey if you'd like to share your feedback with the team. Thanks again for listening to the NSGC podcast series. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner and we'll see you next year.